in the life and death of Jesus Christ, God acted decisively to accomplish our rescue. And the message of the gospel simply announces what Christ has done. It is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part two of The Keynote of Romans. What does it mean to be saved? What does the Bible mean when it speaks about God saving someone? You might be familiar with the concept, but has it ever really been defined for you? Simply put, the word saved means to rescue. The question is, from what and to what? Well, on today's program, Tom will continue to explore what the keynote of Romans reveals about the gospel, specifically what Jesus saves you from and what he saves you to. Let's join Tom Pennington right now to learn more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, We were born again. We were given new spiritual life as though we had been rebirthed through the living and enduring Word of God. God's Word, specifically the Gospel, is the instrument that God uses to bring a spiritually dead heart to life. In fact, The gospel's power lies in the fact that it is through the gospel message God calls sinners to himself. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross, the message about the cross, the message about what Christ did in dying for sins on the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You're here this morning, and you know what? You can take this or leave this. This is, eh, I don't know, that seems a little odd. It's because you're perishing. It's because you are dying. You are already dead in your sin, and you are moving toward what the Bible calls eternal death. But to us who are being saved, it, that is the message about the cross, is the power of God. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. In other words, what Paul's saying is, God in his wisdom decided he would not allow people to arrive at the truth through their own wisdom. And so in God's wisdom, he came up with a plan that throws human wisdom on its head. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, or we could say through the foolish message about the cross through that message to save those who believe. Now, how does he do that? Look at verse 23. We preach Messiah crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ or Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know what he's saying? He's saying the gospel is the instrument that God uses to call people to himself. If you're in Christ, you are the called. And what that means is he used the gospel to call you to himself. 
The gospel is, a, is an announcement to everyone, proclaiming what God has done and will do for those who believe. But for those who are the called, there was a moment in time when God was in that general announcement of the gospel, deliberately, specifically drawing them, calling them to himself. They are the called. It's all God's doing. It's all God's power. You know, that's encouraging because it means my salvation doesn't depend on me or on my faithfulness. God's power is what saves, keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. Now, when we say it is the power of God, don't misunderstand. The power is not in the letters or the words of the gospel. Those in and of themselves don't have the power in them to save. Paul described it this way in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He said, my gospel came to you not in word only. You see, if, if you only hear the gospel, you may have grown up in a Christian home, you've heard the gospel your whole life, and you've heard it and it's done nothing to you because you heard it in word only. But Paul says to the Thessalonians, my gospel came to you not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. The power in the gospel is not in the letters and words. It's in the convicting and illuminating power of the Spirit. But the message of the gospel is what he uses. When the gospel is preached, just as I have already done today, it is not so many words. It is the power of God at work. Listen, folks, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to communicate the gospel to a family member or a neighbor or a co-worker because as you share the gospel message, the power of God will work in and through that message. In some cases, it'll bring life. You will be the one who, who sows the seed. You'll be the one who waters the seed somebody else already sowed in the past. Or maybe you get to be the one who sees God bring that person to life. The power of God will be at work in the gospel. Or maybe, sadly, you'll be the person who sows the gospel and it will be the power of God to further show the sin and guilt of that person. Remember Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, that sometimes I preach the gospel and it only brings further condemnation. It brings death to those who will not believe it. Other times, it's a fragrance of life. But regardless, when you bring the gospel, it is the power of God. It's doing what God wants it to do in that life, either for life or for death. So Paul argues that we should never be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Now, there's a second reason that he gives us for not being ashamed of the gospel. It's because it produces salvation. It produces salvation. Look again at verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's the main idea here. Paul is not commenting in verse 16 about God's general power, his, his creative power, his sustaining power. He's talking about his rescuing power. He says that God works in the gospel to produce salvation. 
Now, Paul uses this word group, salvation, you know, it comes in various forms, to be saved, etc. He uses it in all of its forms about 50 times in his letters. And Paul uses it exclusively to refer to spiritual deliverance. This word salvation, as you know, is a general term that refers to everything that God does to bring a sinner into proper relationship with himself. It includes, salvation includes concepts like justification, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, redemption, sanctification, and even glorification. Salvation is the large concept that includes it all. And the good news, the gospel, is how that salvation becomes ours. We are saved through the gospel. Now, what does it mean to be saved? You know, that's a good word. It's a biblical word. I grew up hearing that word, but it was never really defined for me. What do we mean when we talk about God saving someone? The word simply means to rescue. We're talking about spiritual rescue. But then the question is, rescue from what and to what? You see, normally when we think of salvation, we think of it as solely negative, what we are saved from. But did you realize we are also saved to something? Let me give you a little list of what we are saved from and what we are saved to. Let me encourage you to jot this down. Think about this, because if you're in Christ, this is you. This is what God has done in your life. This is what being saved means. First of all, it means that he has saved us from objective guilt to righteousness. From objective guilt to righteousness. Look at chapter 3 of Romans. In verses 19 and 20, Paul concludes his indictment of the whole human race. We're going to go through his indictment of all humanity. And this is how he wraps it up. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, both Jews who have the written law and Gentiles who have the law written on the heart, Romans 2.14. And the result of that is that every mouth may be closed. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the day of judgment. When every single person stands on the day of judgment, they will have no excuse, nothing to say. You know, everybody talks about they're going to tell God this and tell God that. Listen, when a sinner stands before God, his hand will be over his mouth and his face will be in the dirt. Every mouth will be closed. And all the world may become literally guilty before God. Everybody, guilty. Because through the law, verse 20, everybody learned about the nature of sin. So there is objective guilt. But notice how in the next few verses, we have righteousness instead. We did have objective guilt, but now, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and everyone who believes is declared righteous as a gift by His grace. And that's made possible through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You see, we are saved from objective guilt to righteousness. If you sit here this morning in Christ, God sees you as though you have never in your life had a sinful thought. He sees you as though you have never displayed one bad attitude, as though you have never 
said one sinful word as though you have never committed one sinful action. You have gone from objective guilt to righteousness. That's salvation. But that isn't it. We're also saved from moral corruption to holiness. From moral corruption to holiness. If you want to see moral corruption, look at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, where he charges everybody is under sin. Verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good in the sight of God, not even one. And then he describes how how we all, in our sin, use our mouths to attack and to deceive and to hurt others. He talks about how we are, we are destructive to all of our relationships. And he ends in verse 18 by saying, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the ultimate indictment. Every sinner lives as though God doesn't exist or doesn't care. That's who we were. We were utterly morally corrupt. But God has saved us from that unto holiness. So that we get to chapter 6, and he says, we are now slaves of righteousness. Or you get to chapter 12, and he says, we're now able to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. We went from moral corruption to holiness. Not only that, but God also saves us from the wrath of God to the love of God. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 5 says that now as believers, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. In other words, the knowledge of God's love for us is now known to us. It's within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But that isn't always how it's been. We didn't always live in God's love. Notice Verse 9, much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That's where we used to live. We lived with God's anger. This is a frightening thought. You understand that God expects us to obey Him, and when we don't obey Him, when we take His good gifts and abuse them, it makes Him angry, and the day is coming when He will unleash His just anger against the sin of every person who refuses to bow the knee to Him. That's where we lived, under His wrath. But now, we live in His love. He saved us from His wrath unto His love. The love of those who are His children. In fact, we're told in chapter 8, that nothing now that we're in Christ can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're also saved from alienation to fellowship. From alienation with God to fellowship. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies to God... You ever thought of that? Before you were in Christ, you may not have thought you were God's enemy, but He thought of you as His enemy. And if you're not in Christ this morning, that's exactly how God thinks of you right now. And that's where we were. But He saved us from being His enemies. Notice verse 9, or excuse me, verse 
10, For if while we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We've been changed from His enemies to His children. We've gone from alienation to fellowship. In fact, earlier in chapter 5, it talks about the fact that we live in hope of the glory of God. Listen, if you're in Christ, you're going to see God. You're going to share God's glory. You went from being His enemy to being one who will stay in His presence forever. That's salvation. We're also saved from slavery to sin to freedom. From slavery to sin to freedom. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We have been transferred, we've been delivered from being slaves of sin. Listen, if, if you're not in Christ, and when you, if you're a Christian before you were in Christ, you thought of yourself as free. Oh, yeah, I'm doing what I want. You're not doing what you want. You're a slave. You're a slave of your sin. But God saved us from being slaves of sin into freedom, being able to live like He made us to live. We're saved from eternal death to eternal life. Look at chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, both physical death and eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only life that lasts forever, but a new quality of life where we can know God and interact with God now and forever. And finally, we've been saved from a fallen, decaying body, or we will be saved from a falling, decaying body to glorification. Look at chapter 8. He talks about in verse 20, the whole creation has been subjected to vanity, to futility because of the fall. But someday, God's going to set it free from that slavery. And that includes us. Verse 23, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves now groan within ourselves because we still have the flesh. We still have our fallenness. They're part of us that's still unredeemed. But we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We will be rescued from fallen flesh, a fallen, decaying body into the glory of a body likened to His glorious body. Folks, when we talk about being saved, that's what we're talking about. You have been saved from all of those things to all of those things. And here's what's interesting. When Scripture speaks of our salvation from those things to the things we just described, it does so in three tenses. Past tense, present tense, future tense. Past tense, Romans 8.24, it says, in hope we have been saved. That's past. At the moment of your conversion, when you repented and believed, you were saved in this sense. Ephesians 2.5 says, by grace you have been saved. Already happened in the past. This refers to our justification. Scripture also uses the present tense to describe our salvation. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, we read a moment ago, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
This points to our sanctification. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives, in the past, from the penalty of sin. In the future, we will be saved. Scripture speaks of our salvation as future. For example, in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Or Romans 13, 11, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. It's future. This speaks of our glorification. In the past, saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, being saved from the power of sin in our lives. In the future, saved from the presence of sin and the possibility of sin. And the gospel is that through which the power of God accomplishes all of that in our lives. Here's how it works. One day, in God's providence, you heard the gospel. Maybe you'd heard it many times before. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. You'd heard it lots of times. But one day, you really heard it because the Spirit of God was working in the gospel that day. And as you heard it, God was awakening you to your own sense of sin. You saw yourself as deserving of God's wrath. You saw the beauty of Christ and you saw the amazing offer of forgiveness and you wanted it desperately because God was calling you through the gospel to himself on that day. At that moment, the gospel was the power of God unto salvation in your life. Paul says, I can't be ashamed of the very instrument that God used to bring life to our dead souls and will use in that way in the lives of others. Why is it God's power? Because it's about His Son, Jesus Christ. In the life and death of Jesus Christ, God acted decisively to accomplish our rescue. And the message of the gospel simply announces what Christ has done. It is the power of God unto salvation. Now, let me just very briefly, as we conclude our study, let me encourage you to apply the truth we've learned today in two ways. First of all, I need to note that every person here this morning is in one of two states. Yes, I know you're in the state of Texas, but you're also in one of two other states. You are, as you sit here this morning, you are either in a state of already having been spiritually rescued, Or you are in a state that the Bible calls perishing or being lost. You are lost to God. You don't know Him. You'll never know Him unless things change. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to rescue that which was lost. Listen, Christ seeks lost people who have no relationship with God, who are lost to God and will be for all eternity. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. If you will respond in faith to the announcement God has made about His Son, you can move today from a state of perishing and being lost to a state of salvation. If you're already in Christ, if you're already in Christ this morning, let me challenge you. How do you respond? Determine to think and meditate on the gospel. 
in the coming weeks as we unfold the gospel, as Paul explains it here, think about it, meditate on it, live in it, because it will do for you what Paul promised it would do for the Romans. It will establish you in your faith. And pray that God would give you both courage and opportunities to give the good news to others. Don't allow the world to humiliate you into silence. Don't be intimidated. Don't be embarrassed to communicate the gospel. Pray that God would give you the same resolve he gave the Apostle Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ because it is God's power and it produces salvation. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, The Keynote of Romans. Tom will have part three for you on our next broadcast, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.